This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. cases that I've come across in a long time. On the surface, it looks like there's not very much information available about it. But if you dig like I like to dig, then there's actually a lot of information about it. And I have, I sort of been torn on like what the outcome of this case is. I have like three outcomes and one of them is terrible. One of them is not great. And then one of them is very hopeful. And I will mention what those three outcomes are once we're done talking about this case. This goes into NamUs, June 4th of 2010. But this case is from December 25th, 2005. If you go into NamUs, you can find her under MP7377. She's white female, five feet, four inches tall, 130 to 140 pounds. Uh, She would have been 42 years old when she went missing. If she were alive today, she'd be 60. She has brown hair that's uh, either worn loose or in a ponytail. Uh, It's said to be very long, like to the middle of her back. And she has blue eyes. And she has a couple tattoos. She had a, uh, a car that went missing with her, but it's recovered like a kind of a long distance away from where she was. Now, she goes missing somewhere in Oklahoma. We're going to tie her to Sand Springs, Oklahoma. It's said that she was possibly in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and in between. But the car is found in Red River County down in Texas, in Clarksville. So I'll give you kind of the rundown on this case. This is Karen Faye Heim uh, that we're talking about today. The circumstances of her disappearance are that she left her parents' home in Tulsa, Oklahoma at approximately 20.30 hours on Christmas. So 8.30 Christmas Day, she leaves her parents' home. She's allegedly seen by witnesses on the day after Christmas in both Tulsa and Sand Springs. And Tulsa and Sand Springs are 10 or 15 minutes apart here, depending on like where in each place you're going. But on 
the 27th of December, 2005, at very early in the morning, Karen's car, which is a 1988 uh, Buick Electra, is found on Farm Road 1159 outside of Clarksville, Texas. That's about four hours south. You actually literally have to go across the the Choctaw Nation there to get to where this car was found. And it's 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 pretty far away. Um, I'm saying four hours south, like in literal terms, if you were to like kind of go straight to it. But if you take any of the major roads, it could be a little longer. Now, Charlie Project has her. She's gotten a lot of coverage over the years. Uh, the Tulsa Missing Persons page on Facebook has her. KTUL News 8 had a couple articles about her. News on 6 had her. KOTV, the Paris News had her. Red River County Sheriff's Department had a notice about her. Tulsa Police Department had a notice about her. So, And obviously, Nameless and Charlie Project have her. Now, there's a, a couple of things going on here that come up on the Charlie Project profile. We're going to talk about that. Uh, they state right up front that she had a history of depression. And that's one of the possible outcomes of this. It's like her life maybe didn't go the way she thought. And, and I'll state right up front, sometimes people take their own lives and, and they do it in odd ways. That's a potential outcome here. It's a, it would be an odd one with this case, but it, it definitely could have happened. Here's what uh, Charlie Project's like rough description says. It says... Karen was last seen leaving her West Tulsa, Oklahoma home at approximately 10 o'clock p.m. on December 26, 2005. She's never been heard from again. Her car, a tan 1988 Electra Park Avenue with an Oklahoma license plate, was located the next day on Farm to Market 1159, approximately 12 miles north of Clarksville, Texas, near the Oklahoma state border. The vehicle's doors were open, and it had had been wiped clean of prints. All of Karen's belongings, including her purse, her keys, her social security card, driver's license, money, and a toll receipt were inside of it. And then it says a photo of the car is posted with uh, this case summary. Karen's loved one stated she had no connection to that area, and they didn't know why she would go there. Um, although she has a history of depression... Karen was reportedly in good spirits at the time of her disappearance. It is that time of year, though, where you get kind of, you can be kind of miserable if you have a history of depression. The holidays do that to people. Karen had testified against her ex-husband and others at a methamphetamine trial months before she went missing. It's unclear whether the trial is connected to her case. Now, normally I don't do this, and I am not judging Karen when I talk about this stuff. Karen has a mugshot on the Charlie project profile. So I went, that made me go digging. And then they have this reference to this criminal trial. They have a picture of her car up. She's considered to be an endangered missing person's case. And I dug into this trial and I, I kind of made you go down that rabbit hole too. What do you, what do you think of this case? Like, what do I think the outcome is or what do you mean? Like, what, what do you think about like this particular case? Just in general, nothing. Um, I think, well, I think that the, uh, for one thing, they mentioned that she was depressed, right? So that gets her put into sort of one pile, right? 
And that would be the people who have just, you know, decided they're not going to deal with life anymore. And then, of course, they mention uh, her testifying at at a criminal trial involving her ex-husband and uh, others. And uh, they were basically, I don't know if they, I think they were cooking meth and dealing meth. Yeah. Is that accurate? Yeah, there's a lot going on with that that we'll get into in just a and second. And there's also a lot of people um, that are associated with, I mean, I'm not saying they were all on trial. It's just a lot of people sort of in the mix there. And you had made the comment like, well, why didn't she go to jail? Which, do you know what her arrest was for? Because we have a mugshot. Which one? Oh, Okay. Um, well, I didn't know, like, and you were like, well, how did she not go to jail? And I was like, well, probably because she testified, right? Also, I also was wondering, uh, do you know when they became exes? Uh, I, I don't have a divorce state clear here. I, so I ran into a problem with this case. And the first problem is the definition of the word recently that everybody throws around here. Charlie Project and multiple other sources, I think Oklahoma cold cases and maybe the OSBI, they all say this set of words. Helm testified against her ex-husband and others at a methamphetamine trial months before she went missing. So there's that set of words. And then there's Karen had also recently been, so Heim had testified against a trial months before Karen had also recently been involved as a witness in a case against her husband. Although police have stated it's unclear for testimony and the drug cases related to her disappearance. Okay. Just on the surface, and there could be more here and I'm missing something. It ain't recent and it's huge. It's not small. It is not like something that you mentioned to the side of things. According, (laughs) go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I agree. I felt like it was huge. And I was trying to sort of hammer out why it would have been said that she recently testified. Right. But go ahead. Yeah. Okay. So here's what we have. There is a sprawling series of documents in this case where Karen is mentioned. Now, the background on the main document that I'm pulling from is one of the appellate documents in 2005. Because I tried to find something that was as close to this period of time as I could. And I don't see where she's testifying in 2005. One place says months, one says recently. I don't see anything like that happening. No, but what did happen was um, an appeal with regard to the case um, that went to the 10th Circuit United States Court of Appeals was decided on May the 3rd, 2005. Right. And so that's and actually it what it mentions her testimony, but right. the testimony would have been, I believe in like maybe Oh one. I can't really tell. It would have been pre, it would have been before this though, because it had gone all the way through trial. And you know, when you go to an appeals court, there's no testimony given. Yeah, so uh, the indictment is 2002. We're going to talk about some 01 incidents here for a minute. Let me just run through this sort of list. And I, and I want to mention it because they very openly mention Karen, and this is a public document. So in July of 1999, a guy named Morgan Windricks bought a fenced 10-acre property in Osage County, Oklahoma. 
and he lived there in a double-wide mobile home. Shortly after this, a guy named David Westcott moved onto this property after Morgan invited him to live there in a single-wide mobile home. And his now former wife is Karen Hine, and she moves onto the property with them. Then a guy named Charles Mook. Now, Charles Mook is Morgan Windrick's nephew. He would show up and he kind of lived there, but he was sort of a handyman in a couple places over in Tulsa. And I say sort of because it mentions it here, but when I go hunting him, that's not really what it looks like. So between 1999 and 2002, you have Morgan, David, and Charles. They are all manufacturing and distributing methamphetamine, and they're using Windrick's property, his 10-acre property here, as their base of operations. Windrick's, Morgan Windrick's, he arranges for cooks twice a week, and he is supervising the procurement of the ingredients. And I don't know if you remember, like, how this was said to be going down in the late 90s, early 2000s. But this is a time when, if you've been in recently and tried to buy certain over-the-counter medications like Sudafed, you have to show an ID now, and sometimes you have to sign a log. It's because of this time. People were going and buying batteries in bulk and different antihistamines in bulk that they would bring back to a cook with a couple of other ingredients. They would turn this into methamphetamine. So David, who is Heim's ex-husband, he's assisting during the cooks. He's assisting with purchasing the ingredients, and he's the person in charge of destroying the evidence in the cooks. Charles, he's also there during the cooks, and he is keeping the meth and the, quote, business records along with firearms and ammunition in the different houses that he's allegedly a handyman for, whatever that means. So there's a number of issues in here that are, are talked about on the appeal. Basically, there's a bunch of stuff where they're, they're arguing against the searches and seizures that happen, which take place over a long time. So the first one is officers execute a search warrant at this property on February 6th of 2001, there they discover, like searching both trailers, so the, the trailer that Karen Heim lives in and Morgan Windrick's trailer. So Karen Heim and David live in the single wide, and Morgan lives in the double wide. And officers discover methamphetamine, all the ingredients for a cook. They discover marijuana. They seize a bunch of firearms. They seize a large video surveillance equipment setup that, when I read about it later, it seems pretty rudimentary. They seize a ballistic vest, night vision goggles and scopes. They seize walkie-talkies. They seize radio scanners and an undisclosed amount of currency. So that's February 2001. May of 2001... They execute another warrant, but this time it's in those houses that Charles is, I, I think he's sort of like a slumlord over there or something, not really a handyman, but those houses have more stuff in them. What they find there when they put that warrant in is marijuana, at least one firearm, 
scales, syringes, gloves, meth pipes, a huge amount of receipts for all the ingredients and equipment required to manufacture methamphetamine. And again, a large undisclosed amount of currency. A year later, so 2002, they obtained further evidence, further methamphetamine ingredients, and they get a video of Morgan Windrick's cooking. Okay, they, they end up searching Morgan's car after a traffic stop, and that's how they get this evidence. So in, in September of 2002, there's an indictment that charged multiple defendants with conspiracy. On September 23rd, 2002, officers then execute another search warrant on a different property of Charles Mooks. This time they're looking for documentary evidence of this conspiracy. So it's directly tied to the indictments. It just says there's a fruitful search and a second warrant comes from the fruitful search to search the house for non-documentary evidence. So when they go in looking for the documentary evidence, they're basically looking for papers, photos, and videos that prove it's been happening. Now they're going in and they're looking for anything related to what they think they found on the first search warrant. The second search warrant gets them another large undisclosed amount of currency, financial records, bottles, filters, scales, smoking devices, marijuana, firearms, and ammunition. So they also, during these searches, found a receipt for a storage locker. So there is a third warrant where they go in and they find firearms, ammunition, paperwork, scales, glassware, plastic tubing, and a chemistry textbook textbook in the storage locker. So right there, you have a lot going on. It's very involved. Correct. And I just rattled off. Yeah. A bit of time. Yeah. So they're making this case against a lot of people. Correct. So, uh, if you go and read the appeal, it's a cool appeal um, because it breaks down challenges and like the conspiracy charges and what's happened here. One of the things it says in the course of this appeal, when it gets to the conspiracy charge itself, it talks about the grand jury indictment that charged that this conspiracy had nine named members, three of them indicted. Right. Nine alleged co-conspirators. Correct. Well, they directly mention Karen here, and here's what it says. Uh, David Westcott's former wife, Karen Heim, who lived on the hill with Westcott. The hill is the place that they call this 10-acre property that Morgan owns. She testified that she repeatedly observed Morgan cooking methamphetamine with Charles, David, and others in the back room of Morgan's trailer. She states that she and David purchased ingredients with money from Morgan and cooks took place two to five times a week. And Charles participated in those cooks and purchased ingredients while living there. So she testified here. Um, I want to point out, because I do think it's relevant. So one of the issues on appeal, um, I don't see anything where they were like saying like, oh, this didn't happen. These are like purely uh, technical challenges on appeal, right? Absolutely. From what I can see. Okay. And so one of the things that was uh, brought up is the three defendants that were 
co-conspirators were charged with conspiracy. And um, on appeal, they're saying that there wasn't enough evidence to support a charge that included all the people that supposedly included, which was, you know, nine co-conspirators. But the Court of Appeals specifically offers, uh, and it says, Westcott's former wife, Karen, right, as the link that kind of brings that whole conspiracy home, right? Correct. They quote her testimony, which you went through. But I'm just kind of pointing that out because from what I can see, I believe she's the only uncharged person. I could be wrong, but I, I believe something that stuck out in my mind was she was the only uncharged person that was named in the opinion. Uh, yeah. So as I move through this, we have a managing Pedon um, or Padone. She's a charged co-conspirator. We have Ryan Brandy Langston. He's a, a charged co-conspirator. Are there any Are other you? names? Coney Johnson is a, uh, a, a conspirator that procures ingredients, but we don't know what happens with Coney Johnson. Okay. There's also a criminal turned informant, Ricky Devin McDowlett. Yeah. We also have Ronnie Maynard who's in this mix. Well, my point in saying that was just that like, you know, depending on which way this case were to go, you know, would that put a target on her? Yeah. That's where we're headed here. I want to point out something that's really important here. Most of these people have state charges along the way here. All of the all of what we're talking about right now is a federal set of charges. Correct. And this is in the 10th Circuit United States Court of Appeals. Yeah, so without like without going like really deep into this case because it's not this case is not about like all these hoodlums. Right. The case is about the star witness that went missing. Yeah. Like, so when people say like she was recently, blah, blah, blah. First of all, it wasn't recent. It was, it was basically 2004 when all of this comes to a head, the appeals happened in 2005, but it's all based on indictments from 2002. And so she goes missing in 2005. These people, for the most part, uh, at least the three main ones are convicted it looks like some other people turn along the way and get lesser sentences. The reason we bring this up here is because they get huge amounts of prison time, 20 and like, like 18 to 25 years. Uh, now, most of them are out of prison at this point. This is a federal case. I'm going to say that one more time. This is a federal case because... One of the things I think about this case is, and and this is my, like, this is this is the bad one. So I think her, if she hurt, harmed herself because she couldn't take this anymore, like, potentially the odds are she, she could have harmed herself or she could have, like, walked off to a new life. I'm just going to say that for a second. Those two things could have happened. There is a high likelihood that there's a very strong reason during this appellate process that it looks almost like these people are going to get a new trial a couple of times. And one of the things you don't want if you get a new trial is to have some of the star witnesses come in and testify against you in a way that a jury 
hammers you home. So there is the possibility that like she could have been a target by some of these other sprawling and potentially other unindicted co-conspirators in all of this. Cause this is not a small organization going on here. It's not very well organized and it's not like this huge cartel, but it's definitely a gang of loosely organized criminals making a lot of money that's getting seized by the cops and they don't want a lot of witnesses sitting around. So that could send you down the depression path that could send you down. She was a witness that got a wiped out path but I have a much more Christmas-based thought on this. My Christmas-based thought on this is just for me, and I'm speculating. If the U.S. government and all the powers that be here believe there's the potential for this to have a new trial, because they are clearly fighting this tooth and nail and you can read it there are multiple lawyers on all sides the the government is fighting it out the uh organization is fighting it out and it's not one or two people at a time like there are multiple assistant united states attorneys attached to this case at different points in time i believe Karen Heim, in the situation that she's in and the people that are around her, is a prime candidate for the witness security program. And I know, I I don't say that a lot because a lot of times with missing persons, I don't like to bring that up. I would not be shocked if she showed up alive somewhere with a brand new name and identity. And I know like that's a stretch because it's kind of a bad, it it was a bad way to let her leave this life, but there's so many criminals in this thing that I think that the criminals all think that other criminals they know did away with her. Right. And so um, people that end up in witness protection, I feel like we could speculate and it would probably be kind of entertaining. Um, This, if, if this wasn't the type of witness who should go into witness protection, I don't know who would be, right? Yes, yeah, she, she's kind of the perfect person to, like, even though she's got ties behind her, that's the whole point of witness protection is to get you out of that. And unfortunately, just like um, how the circumstances surrounding her disappearance you know, they say she recently testified, and I believe, I think it's based on the appeals opinion uh, decided date, which is May of 05. Um, that would be a few months before she disappeared, right? Um, even though it, what the things that happened that are being appealed are much earlier. Um, I feel like people take a look at something and they see it and they're like, oh, you know, she testified in 05 and she's named here as testifying. And that's absolutely true. And I'm cons- I would be concerned that anybody along the line in this like huge situation of the, dr- the meth economy here in this area, right? So you're talking about people who are wanting it, people who were selling it, people who, I mean, cause this affected a lot of people's lives, right? Yeah. Not to mention like the people who went to jail, their loved ones. Um, if you skim it, just like people skimmed it and they saw the date at the top and they were like, Oh, she was, the te- she testified in 
05. That's not true. But they would skim it and they would see her name very prominently. And it could be interpreted that, you know, she is the reason this happened. Like, like the bad part of it happened. I'm just saying that because I feel like that's a good correlation to make um, as far as even if it wasn't so much, because ju- it, it wasn't just her, no matter what. But the, the Court of Appeals, like, they, they name her. They say, you know, she testified. And I would find it, I would find it most likely uh, in a situation where you have a drug trial, I mean, uh, a criminal trial with uh, meth charges like you were explaining earlier, and you've got a named witness in the Court of Appeals opinion and all that goes along with that, I would say that if they weren't put into witness protection, then, you know, the really bad part happened. Yeah. In the same year. I mean, what are the odds that that's not the case, right? I I, I don't know. Like, I've, I've always wondered. Well, we'll like, never have know. I have I covered a missing persons case that is not actually a missing person. It's a relocated identity, right? And I was debating, like, well, should we say anything? Well, any of the people that we talk about could be in witness protection, right? I I, I don't know the stats on that. They're not out there. The, there's a reason they're not out there, right? I don't want to expose anybody in witness protection, but. I feel like if nobody put her in witness protection, then our government failed her. Well, so I went, I tried to figure out if there's a way to, to see this. I do know a considerable amount about the witness security program. And I went on here thinking I might see like some tie to all of this. The best thing that I can figure out is that she got arrested later than everyone else. Okay, so she gets arrested, if if what I saw is accurate, she gets arrested in 2004, and it's almost like she gets arrested and gets threatened. And that's the turn for the, the trial. The 2004 trial is based on the 2002 indictment, and I really think that she was pressured into that. And, you know... Law enforcement would respond exactly like this, even if they knew she was in witness protection. If it went down like this, they would just leave her as a missing persons case and it would be open. That's what I've been told. I don't feel like um, I I think that witness protection is on a need to know basis. And I don't even think that people putting her in would even know. But I mean, well, I'm saying law enforcement, very broad general terms. The Department of Justice would certainly know. Right, but not like the you know county sheriff or whatever. Well, the reason I say it here is I can't find an OSBI case on her. And if there ever was going to be an Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation case, it's this one because it's attached to this other case that involved the OSBI. Even though it's ultimately federal, it involves the OSBI. It's in an area next to federal land. And the car is found on the other side of federal land in another state. So in my opinion, if the FBI is not looking for her, it's because they know where she is. I mean, it's possible. I feel like there's a lot of things at play here. I also think that, um, like, everybody could have taken their licks for, you know, breaking the law. And she could have felt really bad about it and 
and committed suicide. Uh, it's weird for somebody to wipe their car down before they commit suicide. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it's, it, this is an odd one. And I, you know, I bring it up here because uh, it's a Christmas association uh, tied into all of this. And I, you know, I know I'm speculating. I'm trying to just be hopeful about this case. Um, I read a lot about this case. I went through a lot of court documents on this. Uh, they're a good read. Um, I, you know, I, I can't help but notice that like some of these people that are in here, uh, if you go on, if you're like me and you go on and read cases, Morgan Windricks and then David Westcott are the names on the uh, appellate documents. And if you just grab those numbers, you can actually go on a, a spree and you can read lots of them. And it's a, it's a fascinating investigation. I did notice that quite a few of these people, including like the Amanda person that pops up and some of these others, they never really go to federal prison, but man, do they show up in meth arrest after meth arrest? Because when all this initial stuff happens in 99 through about 2002, it's not really super big on the internet, but everything like you can follow the rest of these people uh, like in their meth careers after that. So there are definitely some of the co-conspirators out running around that could have harmed her for whatever reason she were to still sure. be involved with that. So, you know, you can read about those different people um, and, and, and it's a lot of fun. But the main point that I, I wanted to talk to her about her case today, just in case she is still out there somewhere and like there's a body to be found or, you know, ever how you want to like kind of treat that. I always hope those people can come home. Yes, I, I would, I, you know, that would be like the best possible outcome, but We'll, I, I have a feeling we'll really never know. And just, uh, it's so terrible, really. It is. Do you have uh, much more on this? I, I don't. I want to talk about her, but I don't, um, I don't have more to say because that's it for the information. You know, the, the coverage dies off uh, about 2010 for her. And I wondered if like some family members had passed away who were really pushing for this. There is coverage of her in 2006, 2007. And she's mentioned on the internet. If you go looking, there are some, still some news articles and some places that she shows up as far as people wondering where she is, but it's generally less official. Um, how many unidentified female bodies do you think have been found in, that are currently in NamUs. So we're talking uh, since 05, since Christmas of 05. How many do you think are still in NamUs? Just guess. Uh, 600. Okay, there's 10. Wait, no okay. way. Yes, there's 10 unidentified female bodies in Oklahoma. Oh, you went with Oklahoma. I was, I was not going to look at just Oklahoma with her. Well, no, I lo I've looked at several states because the way her car was, the way that I sort through this stuff is to break it down. But like literally there were only 10 female bodies in Oklahoma. Now that doesn't mean that's all there's ever been. It just means the other ones have been identified, right? Yeah. And so I'm just saying like when you break it down, right, there was also one in, um, Oh, wait, no, it is in Oklahoma. But there was one of the unidentified people in Oklahoma was actually found in a riverbed in New Mexico. Yeah. So, you know, why is she listed as Oklahoma? Is she ruled out for this one? No, she's not ruled out. In fact, I wanted to see. 
I, I don't know that um, there's DNA, but no, uh, she's not. But she is uh, identified as Hispanic slash Latino, which wouldn't like that would put her not being compared okay. uh, with Karen. But I I feel like the comparison would be warranted because uh, the stats on this particular unidentified person. So she's listed in Oklahoma, uh, but it the circumstances of the recovery state collected from a riverbed in New Mexico. And uh, she was found July 14th, 2015, and her estimated year of death is between 2003 and 2013. Yeah. One of the things that's interesting, how does she end up in Oklahoma? I have no idea. Like, somebody put her in a book bag and brought her back, I guess. I I don't know. But, you know, in that type of situation, um, okay, the reason it caught my attention, right, was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> because I'm, my initial thought was, well, they left her car in Texas and they like, you know, took her body to Arkansas or something. Right. Yeah. Um, that's my thought going through that kind of thing. Um, I also think that there's probably somebody in this case that could, that knows, right. Yeah. Or several people or, I mean, I would think, let's see, that's 18 years have gone by. Right. Yeah. Um, so maybe everybody is dead. I, I don't think so. I think that there are people who. Oh no! There are, most of these guys are alive. A couple of them are dead, but most of them are alive. Right. Well, going to jail saved a lot of their lives. I'm sure. Um, yeah. And uh, but you know, with meth, it's always. Um, I just I don't know any. I I don't know a lot about people that do meth in any way, shape, or form. But my thought of them is like that they're, everything's just wild and crazy, right? That's my thought. Like, you know, they ride hard and then they die young sometimes. And so I don't know, but, um, I feel like there are people in this situation, uh, that know. And the reason they're not talking is because literally, um, Karen is the example, right? Cause she talked, she testified, right? Yeah. And everybody knows like they're next if they say anything. Yeah, that's probably the case. I um, I don't have anything else on her right now, but I am interested in that unidentified body. If you if you find more information on that, I will I will go and take a look at that. I know that New Mexico and Oklahoma touch on the west side of Oklahoma, like the bottom part. This Oklahoma and Texas come together at New Mexico, so it could be related to that. But that would be the opposite direction. Heading west would be the opposite direction of her car, which was headed south. Well, right, and that was my whole point. I feel like they spread it out. She could have run off. She could have had somebody take her to Mexico. That's, maybe that's why the cards in Texas. That's why they swapped cards and wiped everything down. That could also be a thing. Okay, but I, if you put everything on the line to testify, and then you just like leave your parents' house and you don't even say bye, that's Yeah, but at weird. least you got to spend Christmas with them. Well, I mean, I that's a U.S. that's a U.S. government thing, by the way. What? Spend the holiday with them. I know you really want her to be in witness protection, and I I hope she is. I really do. I hope she is. Well, if they're good at the witness security related to that, then we will never know. Well, that's my yeah. That's kind of my point because uh, we won't. Okay, so I have I have a uh, an exoneration case. You want to go to that? Yep. I think this is a fun one. Uh, It's a weird one. This is out of Jefferson County, Louisiana. 
And it's a it's a 68 year old Caucasian male at the time of the crime, which is 1919. He's convicted in 1919, and then he is exonerated in 1920. And that's based on the contributing factors, perjury or false accusation. Now, technically, this is this is two exonerations in one. And the other person in this instance was a 17 year old Caucasian male, and he gets sentenced to death. So around 3 a.m. on March 9th of 1919, grocer Charlie Cordomiglia, he's an Italian immigrant. He's asleep in his bed with his wife, Rosie, and their two-year-old daughter, Mary. They're attacked by either an intruder or intruders with an axe. Mary is killed. Her parents both receive severe head injuries. The Cordomiglias lived just across the Mississippi River from New Orleans in Gretna, Louisiana. So they're taken over to Charity Hospital in New Orleans after the attack. At the time of the attack, there was a serial killer known as the Axeman who had been terrorizing New Orleans for nearly a decade. After several years without striking, the Axeman had become active again in 1918 and 1919. He targeted Italian immigrant grocers in New Orleans. He would use an axe to violently kill or maim the grocers and sometimes their families during the night. To gain entry to his victims' homes, the axeman would chisel out a panel of a back door and then reach in, turn the lock or the bolt, and he would climb through. He ransacked the victims' bedrooms, but he never appeared to take anything. Now, while the attack on the Cordomiglias did not occur in New Orleans like the previous Axman crimes, Frank Mooney, who was the New Orleans superintendent of police at the time, he quickly made public his belief that the Cordomiglias were victims of the Axman. Other than the location, the crime fit the Axman's pattern. Gretna police felt differently. They were skeptical that a serial killer had come to their community, so they started looking for other explanations in their investigation. And soon, they sort of laser-focused in on the Cotamiglia's next-door neighbor. The next-door neighbors were a 68-year-old man named Iorlando Giordano and his 17-year-old son, Frank Giordano. Like the Cotamiglias, the Giordanos were in the grocery business in Gretna. The two families had been close, but recently, when the Cotamiglias opened a competing grocery store down the street from the Giordano store, they got into an ongoing quarrel. Police theorized that this falling out and the Cotamiglias' rival business had spurred this attack. According to the Giordanos, however, the level of the quarrel was, had largely blown over by the time of the attack, and the Giordano family had remained especially fond of Mary. Mary even referred to the older Giordano as Grandpa. The Giordanos had been among the first on the scene of the crime after another neighbor discovered the Cotamiglias in bed with their grave injuries. Despite having very serious life-threatening injuries, Rosie and Charlie survived. 
Rosie suffered a fractured skull and a brain injury. And her physician, who treated her at the time, Dr. Landry, he believed that the attack might leave her with what is quoted as a permanently faulty mind. Basically, he didn't know if she if the brain damage was going to allow her to function again. During this time, the Cotamiglias were being treated at Charity Hospital. The Gretna police and the parish sheriff, Louis Marrero, they started hounding them for details of the attack. Now, initially, both Charlie and Rose told the doctors, police, and their family and friends that they had no idea who had been attacking them. Regardless of them saying this, police end up arresting the Giordanos a week after the attack, and they held them in the Gretna jail. On March 28th of 1919, Rosie was released from the hospital. Sheriff Marrero immediately arrested her as a material witness and held her in the Gretna jail. The next morning, Rosie, who could not read or write English, was released upon signing an affidavit that identified the Giordanos as the attackers. A coroner's jury was convened on April the 13th to assist with the inquest by collecting preliminary information about young Mary's death. After hearing Rosie's affidavit as testimony identifying the Giordanos, the coroner's jury returned a verdict of murder against the father and son Giordanos. By this time, the Giordanos had retained William Burns Jr., who was an experienced defense attorney. Following the coroner's jury verdict, Burns immediately contested the jailing of Rosie, and he requested that she be tested for mental competency. Judge John Flurry granted Burns' request and scheduled a preliminary hearing for May the 7th. On May the 5th of 1919, Frank and his dad were indicted for Mary Cotamiglia's murder. With this indictment, Judge Flurry decided to cancel that preliminary hearing, ruling that it would be useless and unnecessary, and instead set a trial date of May 19th. On May 19th, a joint trial begins for the Giordanos in the 28th District Court. And the 28th District Court at the time served as a district for St. Charles, St. John, and Jefferson Parishes. And we've talked about this before. In Louisiana, instead of counties, you have parishes. District Attorney Robert Rivarde, who had some pretty close political and personal ties to Sheriff Marrero, prosecuted this case. And the prosecution was assisted by Clay Gaudet. He was an attorney that had been hired by the Court of Miglia family. The state's case depended on Rosie's identification of the Giordanos. She testified that Frank had been in her bedroom with his dad at the time of the attack and that Frank had attacked Mary with the axe. So she's saying the 17-year-old was the one who hit her, uh, who hit the baby. Charlie testified that he didn't have any recollection of the attack. So Frank and his dad both testify. The prosecution asked about threats that they had made against the court of Miglias and to third parties, but both, both men denied ever having made such statements. The people who supposedly heard the threats were not called to testify. And in cross-examination, the prosecution tried to present Frank as a liar they were emphasizing minor inaccuracies in his statements and stories to the police and suggested that he had not been home as early as he claimed on the night of the attack. 
The defense was not permitted to introduce evidence relating to the axemen or those other crimes to show that the attack on the Cotamiglias fit the specific pattern of a serial killer who was known to be active nearby. So on May 26, 1919, the jury found Frank and his dad guilty. Frank was convicted of murder in the first degree, and he was sentenced to death. Orlando was convicted of murder without capital punishment, and he was sentenced to life in prison. After the sentences were read, Frank rose and addressed the court. He said, Judge, you can hang me if you want. I'd rather hang than die with a lie on my conscience, like I know one witness in this case will do. But don't send my father to the penitentiary for for life. He's as innocent as I am. If you're going to hang me, set him free. A local reporter at the time, a guy named Jim Colton, he was convinced that Giordano's were innocent. He promised young Frank that he would work to uncover the truth. Judge Flory denied the, the Giordano's motion for a new trial, and Burns filed an appeal to the Louisiana Supreme Court in November of 1919. I'll tell you what, man, the trials and the sentences move really fast during this time, but the appeals are still slow. Right. Mm-hmm. In January of 1920, the Giordano's made the news when Frank's sister, Anna, held her wedding accept reception at the Gretna jail so that her father and brother could be a part of the celebration. On February 3rd of 1920, Rosie spoke with Colton and she recanted her testimony. She said that her accusations against the Giordano's were false. She explained that St. Joseph had come to her in a dream and told her she could not die with his sin on her conscience. So Rosie signed a statement stating that the attackers' faces had been covered with red bandanas and she did not recognize them or their voices. News of her retraction made headlines the next day. And then shortly after making the statement, Rosie was admitted to the hospital with smallpox. District Attorney Rivarde, he remained convinced of the Giordano's guilt and he did not believe Rosie retracting her statement. He threatened to charge her with perjury if she changed her original trial testimony. On March 6th of 1920, the Giordano's appeal was heard by the Louisiana Supreme Court. They said the prosecution had failed to turn over to the defense Rosie's written written statement identifying the Giordano's or to produce the witnesses who had allegedly heard the, the Giordano's making threats against the Cordomiglias. On April the 5th, the court granted the appeal and they overturned the Giordano's convictions. Rosie recovered from smallpox and was released from the hospital on, on April 23rd of 1920. Under oath in front of a notary, she repeated her statement that she was retracting her testimony. And there were several witnesses to this. In a local news article, Rosie accused Gretna jailer Charles Bergbacher of threatening her her with life in prison if she did not identify the Giordanos as the attackers. The retrial of the Giordanos was scheduled to begin on December the 6th of 1920. When Rosie arrived at the courthouse, the prosecutor called her into his office, and Rosie maintained her certainty that the Giordanos were innocent. She confirmed that she would testify to such, regardless of the risk of any perjury charges. Rivarde, the the district attorney, then decided to drop the charges against the Giordanos, and Judge Gautier granted Rivarde's motion to dismiss the charges 
and the father and son were released from jail. After 1919, the mysterious Axeman never struck again in New Orleans. Some experts believe he, tra- he may have traveled northwest through the state as a series of similar, similar crimes occurred in other areas of Louisiana through 1921. Uh, this was written up by Megan Barrett Casino. She wrote it for the National Registry of Exonerations. This is another like kind of a, a twofer exoneration here. And I, I thought this was an interesting one. Uh, it ties into December a little bit because they were due to be retried. I, it's, just a, I, it's just a fascinating one overall. What did you think of this? Well, it's an interesting, it's interesting. The case is very interesting. And the reason I say that is because we've got this um, uh, serial killer, uh, even if it is just a phenomenon at the time, right? The Axeman, he's terrorizing um, New Orleans, right? And then you've got a situation in this case in particular where um, a mom and dad, a husband and wife together with their uh, two-year-old daughter, they're all in bed and only the daughter dies, right? Yeah. Granted, an ax is a terrible weapon, right? And a uh, an axe hack, you know, as terrible as this sounds, an axe hack to a two-year-old is could be a lot more damaging than to an adult, right? Yeah. Because of just the size, right? Because I was trying to figure out, in these older cases where there's not a whole lot of information, I always wonder if, like, you know, there is an axe man, but there's also people who want to get rid of people. And so they're the ax man temporarily. Right. Yeah. Copycats that come about to like, it's, it's like copycats of convenience. Correct. And, and so one of those are going to have like just a typical type of motive, right? Yeah. Um, it, it's just, they don't, whoever actually did it doesn't want to take the blame for it. And they think they can, you know, kind of slide it in. And the way this case kind of churns out and like all the other victims involved, like it just makes you wonder like, well, who was really doing this now? Um, I find it increasingly odd (laughs) that the father and the son were charged. Yeah. It's just, it's a matter of, it's just proximity to the crime. Right. And, and they had, so at this point in time, a lot like it is now, uh, because we're past a hundred years from the point of time this case was happening, right? Um, You know, you've got a prosecutor who's trying to prosecute a crime, a baby died, right? Um, And they're pushing. And I do think that it was largely proximity, right? It is a hundred percent proximity in my opinion. And you know, that's so wrong. Um, I always, in the like bigger scope of things, I always think to myself, well, that person is in the wrong uh, career path, right? They're on the wrong career path when they're uh, headed the wrong direction. Now, you know, it ends up, the case is overturned and they end up not being retried, right? Correct. And so, um, do you believe that they were actually innocent? I do believe they were innocent. I believe the Axeman was real. And uh, I have I have opinions about him that I'm not going to go into here. Sure. I will I will say that the Axeman is very interesting to me for a number of reasons because he's sort of the original American uh, 
press communicator or something like that. How can you um, send a note, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, here's what I'll say about the Axeman is everybody who has talked about him on a podcast got everything wrong about him. Um, he's one of those that like is me. Is he's mainly made up of speculators. Now there's a couple of good sources about the Axeman out there. I'm not going to name them here because at some point I'm going to come back around to him. Um, he's part of a phenomenon that in time, like one of the people we covered right before Halloween was Earl Nelson. And we talked about a lot of this with Earl Nelson already. So I'm not going to like reiterate it. There is this bizarre phenomenon that happens when, when media starts to be a big deal and that phenomenon sort of coincides with people are bored. And if you give them something, they will run with it. And I'm not talking about now. They are definitely bored now. The internet like proves that because people will do anything on the internet. But I'm talking about like you go back to a certain period of time and all you really did was work and have your relationships and your hobbies were pretty limited. Like you, you could have them, but hobbies were really a rich person's thing during this time. And oh yeah. Cause there was, um, people were literally just barely getting by. We didn't have like a trumped up or a puffed up economy like we do today. Yeah. Overall, the Axeman is a tribute. I think he has six victims maybe, um, that are, uh, that were murdered. And then I think there's six or seven people that were injured. Which is weird. Yeah. Uh, there's a very, there's a set of like really good suspects for that case. And that case sort of got into its own way. It has affected serial killers in America ever since then. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I covered the, the Earl Nelson case. And it's one of the reasons I haven't yet covered the Axeman because I've read some really good uh, sources on him. But what happened to the Giordanos is a fantastic side effect of, and, and by fantastic, I don't mean good. I mean, made up purely a fantasy of serial killers in general. When you have something as specific as this guy's only killing, killing Italian immigrants and these are Italian immigrants who are attacked by a guy with an axe and you jump to the neighbor did it. But what else is, did you guys miss? Well, but there is no indication that like, uh, the neighbors were like responsible for all the axemen killing. Right. There's no, no. I'm just saying when you already know this is happening and Italian grocers are being attacked by a guy with an axe. Why do we, you know, why do we go to, because, because one, because I say all this because in August 10th of 1919, another Italian grocer was killed by the Axeman. Right. And actually the last attack um, was October 27th, 1919. So it went on. Like I know the um, summary says that, you know, the Axeman never struck again in New Orleans after 1919, but we're talking about uh, seven months later. Yeah. And so it's not quite the finality that that kind of seems like it's expressing, right? Um, and so you think that these guys were 
the victim of the uh, serial killer axeman. Yeah, I'm positive. As opposed to the neighbors, right? Correct. This um, is a, in my opinion, this is a good exoneration. Do you think otherwise? No, I don't. I don't think otherwise. Um, I uh, I got really caught up in like. What on earth would motivate somebody to kill a two-year-old, right? Um, I actually don't think he knew the two-year-old was there. Well, that's a, that's the conclusion I came to eventually. Um, and the considering the the weapon, right, an axe, and uh, what an axe will do to a two-year-old versus what an axe will do to an adult, I think it just happened, right? Because I, I I read somewhere that Mary was sleeping in her mother's arms, right? Like, so she was literally like, you know, if you have a toddler, you know, they like sleep on you. And so um, that's my, that was my thought. But initially I was like, well, who's going to kill a two-year-old? And in fact, it doesn't go along with some of the other uh, things that are sort of, I think you're right that they that nobody knew the two year old was there, right? Um, they were basically going to kill the, I think the man and maybe the woman by default, but I don't think that the baby was like targeted, and so that I had to get overcome that hurdle, and then I haven't. I mean, I I've heard of the axemen just vaguely, but you know if we're gonna cover it. We can cover it. I'll look into it more and, you know, we can talk about it. But for the most part, I was mostly hung up on like, uh, this is going to, it would be interesting because of the Italian grocer element. Uh, I would say that this is going to not fall in line with what I normally think of as a potential serial killer, because I think that this guy or the killer, the axeman, he had to have known something about these people, right? He, he absolutely, they're not random. They're not random at all. Right. And, but I think it's going to end up being motivated by, you know, money and revenge, right? Competition for, uh, you're not getting anything out of me about the Axemen right now. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. But yeah, yeah it's good. My it's, point it's, is that it's going to be one of those situations where we're going to be like, Oh wait, can serial killers have these types of motives? Oh, yeah, yeah. I I do agree with you there. I think that's definitely going to happen. The main reason I think this is a good exoneration is because, first of all, Orlando was not in good health. And I want to say he's like 68 when it starts and 70 when all this kind of wraps up. So he's an older guy. Well, and you've got a kid who's saying, if it's accurate, he's saying, hey, judge, you can hang me, but let my father go. Well, that's the other thing. So... So it's unlikely that you've got a father and son doing this. At I all. this is like a million percent what I'm screaming the entire time because well, one of them is going to be like, we can't do this. Well, there's one thing about Frank Giordano you won't find online anywhere. I don't think that anybody has this. Frank Giordano is 17 years old. Right. He's six foot six and weighs 260 pounds. Really? So, yeah. So here's the deal with him. No matter what you do here, I think they put this together and they go, Giordano, the, the senior, has to go through the panel and get in and unlock it 
for Frank to get in because the panels in the door, like that guy's just, he's slightly bigger than me. And the panels in the doors back then, I don't know if you've ever seen like the old doors in uh, New Orleans. It's going to be the same idea. I know Gretna's not New Orleans, so don't yell at me about that. But I know people at me on something. But the um, the door panels were, they would have been about 14 by 14. But that And it's popped out. So when they get to the the Giordano's home, uh, the Giordano's are, are some of the first people to get to the Cotamiglia's home. And then other people come pretty quickly so they find the axe on the back porch they find the panel broken in the home has been rummaged through but nothing has been taken that they can tell later and generally speaking i think they've latched on to frank giordano because he sort of looked like what you picture in movies today is that serial killer just Although, yeah, yeah, just like this hulking young person with like a lot of strength to him, you know, because because he wasn't fat. He's not described as fat. He's described as standing between, I think it said six four and six six in like the the blurb I had read on him, and he's over two hundred pounds. They, uh, one thing said he weighed two thirty, and the other one said something like, uh, I think it actually said thirteen stone, which I interpreted to be. I don't know what it was. Whatever it was, it made me think that like he, this guy is He's a big kid. A I mean, big, big guy. Yeah. But the problem was between – you have to have the two of them for the crime to have occurred. So you have to have uh, e-, e Orlando going into the house and opening it for Frank to get in because it's not broken into otherwise. It's just these back panels are popped out. But that's also the exact M.O., you know, because because by the time this happens, six people have been attacked by this guy. Not all of them are dead, so people have described him. But you've got you've got basically, I, and I don't know all the victims off the top of my head. You've got, I think they start in May of like maybe nineteen eighteen. So there's at least two other grocers that have been attacked, and then those attacks go throughout nineteen eighteen. And now we're in early 1919 and, and the attacks are just continuing. And again, the other thing that would, through the August attacks from the previous year, the ax is found in the backyard again. So this guy is literally following the exact same patterns in his crimes. But now you've picked out the neighbors who run to help these people and are seen arriving at the scene with, with other people and they're trying to help them. There's no way they did this. Right. And uh, I believe there's further descriptions of, um, and you may have said this and I, I might may not have completely uh, processed it at the moment, but like he was, uh, how old was the dad? 70 something. I read two different court record statements. One says he was 68. I think that's referencing when it begins. But I think he turned 69 shortly thereafter mm. because, because by the time I read about um, like the exoneration, which – so March of 1919 through December 20th is our timeline. Uh, December of 1920, they're talking about he's about to turn 70 years old. 
Okay, and uh, the overall impression was that he'd worked really hard all of his life, and it was unlikely he was going to be smashing anybody with an axe, right? Yeah, he like I, I don't know what kind of health he was in, but it was presented as if he had some issues that would have prevented him from being super violent with a big heavy axe. Right, and so I think I think it was a hundred percent proximity, and I do think. That this is just—it's really fascinating to me. Um, I don't know a whole—I mean, I'm vaguely familiar with the concept of the Axeman, but I've actually seen so many different renditions, and having not um, really, you know, done the case, researched the case, um, I'm—I'm I'm a little surprised at some of this, but. It, it's not really relevant to this particular exoneration or these two exonerations, but um, I, I don't think, I don't think the conviction was good to begin with. So yes, I believe the exonerations were, were absolutely appropriate. I don't feel like these guys ever should have even been charged. Yeah. I and, mean, I, I, there's a possibility that there were just copycat axemen, but you know, I don't I think it's the original axemen here. I think that like, our concept of serial killers at the time would not have been like, I think our concept of serial killers today in terms of a society and law enforcement is wrong. So I definitely don't think we understood it in 1919 into 1920. You know what I mean? Sure. No, I, yeah, I agree. Uh, I agree with you. I, and when I make categorizations that contradict what's out there, all I'm doing is trying to offer an explanation. I'm, I'm, not saying I'm right. I'm just saying like there are certain things I've noticed about different things and um, I'll have to really sort of look into that to make source. I don't know if the Axemen killed um, Mary or not, but I do feel confident that I don't think the Giordanos did. Yeah. And so that's kind of where I'm at with it. As far as there could be a lot of information, you know, that could point, either to the Axemen or to somebody else. But there was nothing presented during um, the initial trial that was like, oh, yeah, you know, they definitely had it in for this family. Because if it's true that they heard the screaming and came running, you don't do that, right? You no. Don't go... <laughs> and you want to call it the scene. <laughs> I know, right? And so it's just, it's just really interesting. But I feel like... Um, do you think an axe is a weapon of opportunity? I think it was in the Axeman's case. I think he was so. Because <laughs> it's always left behind, right? A lot of them were left behind. There's there's a whole lot of detail to go into with that. But I think it's a and it was a weapon of opportunity at that time. Right, right. That's what I mean. Um. Well, I guess I, I don't mean... think a lot. I don't think a lot of people today chop their own firewood. I don't think a lot of people today, I, I think people today have completely different lifestyles than they were, you know, oh, yeah. 104 years ago. The axe today, like if, if you were to go to the average home, you know, you, you, you're talking about something that would be more like the fireplace poker. I don't know, like what's it, or a hammer? Like that's a common thing that people have in their homes still. People have hammers today. Right, but um, so that would be like a defensive position, right? Well, I'm saying like if you went into someone's home and you were looking for a heavy bludgeoning weapon today, like back then you I, would have found an axe. What what do you think you would find today? Well, I don't think that 
you would head into somebody's home looking for a weapon. Today? Or, or back then. then? Well, they don't get into like, oh, it was their axe, right? Um, they don't get into that. I was just curious because to me, okay, taking an axe and physically killing someone with it, okay? Now, granted, uh, in this particular case, the baby was killed. That's not really a big victory for anybody. Uh, the, the, the two adults lived, right? Correct. Um, and then, you know, in other cases that were happening around this time that are attributed to possibly, you know, a serial killer called the Axeman, um, you know, people were killed, right? And so the brutality in hacking someone to death with an axe is far greater than a lot of other ways you could kill somebody, right? I would agree with that, yeah. Okay. And, and like, I don't know that I have – I'm going to say it and then I'll probably think of something. But I was going to say I don't know that I've heard of any sort of modern-day axe case, right? Now, I'm squeamish with blood, and so that might make a difference. But, like, in my house – for household items that I have available, if I were to need to defend myself in a moment, I have a machete and I have a baseball bat. And I'm going to go for the baseball bat every single time, right? I've never had to use it. But all I would do is use it to get somebody out of my house. And I feel like the machete... I would literally not be able to do anything. And I guess it's because I, I would think that like it will produce blood. Yeah. And so to me, I, I think the ax situation, um, I feel like maybe it's a weapon of opportunity, but I think that um, the specifics of someone who would use an ax, especially in a serial type uh, string of murders, I think that that would be something that you could really sort of figure out if it applied to people, right? Yeah, there's some thoughts that like this was actually, believe it or not, like kind of a smaller guy because there are descriptions of the Axemen that exist and people can go look for those. Um, but you're, okay, there's an important thing to remember here is the baby died. Well, in some of these other cases, the woman died, but the man didn't. Right, and what does that make you think? He wasn't swinging as hard as we think he was. Or, okay, and every single time I think this, and it doesn't mean I'm right, but I always wonder, like, well, did anybody really come in the house? Yeah, I know what you mean when you say that, too. Because, like, to me, if the woman dies and the man lives, like, what's going on there? I, I'm with you. I, You know... That's that's a complex way to look at things, I think, because the serial killings, the axe stuff definitely happened. There are still axe crimes that happen. Um, it tends to go a little more like you're describing than like more, I'll just say more personal crimes than serial killings. It was sensational at the time. Um, it was around the same time that Earl Nelson had his spree going on so you know it falls into that category as well overall it's not really you know it, it the crimes are not really that unique or even that interesting except the, the sort of commonalities between the victims let you know that it does appear to be a serial killer 
And it that's the part that makes it interesting. It made me wonder, like, well, how many Italian grocers can there possibly be, right? Right. Because, I mean, just the dynamic of that, like, you've got to have, like, a whole store, right? Yeah. Um, and it seems like it was a lot. Uh, of course, I always wonder, like, how much – I'm sure that that's factual, but, you know, it could be – there could be factors that would make it seem a little more believable, I guess. But – well, we'll I come back around to him. Yeah. We may come back around. We may, we may not. I, like, I've got him on a list of things for us to do with, with several other people. So he may come back up at some point. Um, do you have any idea, was um, Earl Nelson ever considered? I don't think he is. I was just curious. You said it was around the same time. I, I don't know. No, I don't think I don't think Earl Nelson was considered. He's one of those that, like, he's sort of in some ways jurisdictionally specific, although we covered the fact that like he did bounce around a little bit. That's what I was wondering. I was just curious. I'm sure it would have come up if it um, coincided chronologically. Right. Yeah. I would have brought that up um, if it fit, uh, but he would, I mean, he'll kind of come up again, although Earl is pretty well accounted for because he gets discharged from the Navy in May of 1919, but all, so so his 1918 is very well accounted for because his service. Okay. Well, his, if you recall, he also went to Napa, Napa State during that time. So he he does get released in 1918, but so 1917 he like. He sneaks back into the military again under a different name, Crazy. and then and then and they they sort of walk him off and say, "Here's here's your home at Napa State," and pat him on the head, and then he comes out. His his murder spree doesn't really <laughs> get going good until 1926, so he's technically after this. But yeah, you know, you're he, right. I was just curious. Well, that's all I got on this these two uh, this missing person and and this case. You got anything else today on this one? No. Thank you for joining us. We are sponsored by LabratiCreations.com. You can check them out at LabratiCreations.com and you can still use the code CRIMEXS for a fun pop pet portrait of your own pet. You can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram at TrueCrimeXS or you can give us a call if you know anything about any of the cases that we're talking about at 252-365-5593. You can also reach us at Gmail at truecrimexs at gmail.com. And you can check out our website at www.truecrimexs.com. We'll see you next time.
All right. So I'm going to tell you guys a, a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the, the Crime XS code there. Um, you can also just message them uh, at uh, Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime XS. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show, and that code is CRIMEXS at LabratiCreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've, I've selected all of these guys. I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors. If you're an athlete, you know that proper hydration is key to peak performance, but plain water can be boring and sports drinks can be filled with artificial ingredients and added sugars. That's why we love Cure. It's a clean and effective way to stay hydrated and perform at your best. I use it late in the day when I switch out of caffeine mode, specifically when I hit the pool or I go play tennis with my wife. I use Cure to help me stay hydrated it helps me recover after a long day. Now, you guys may not know this, but I build things. Right now, I've been building several structures on our property out here. Among those is a new podcast studio space for myself. I do a lot of that work at night and into the wee hours. And I always have some cure with me to go into my aluminum water bottle. Hydration is not just about filling up my aluminum bottle with water. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly. Whether I'm building things or putting the podcast together or chasing these dogs that you sometimes hear in my studio up and down the trails to get them worn out, Cure Hydration is the way that I choose to go. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution or an ORS that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and to rehydrate quickly. The formula is made with all natural ingredients like coconut water powder and pink Himalayan salt. It's free from artificial flavors, from sweeteners and preservatives. Cure Hydration is vegan, gluten-free and non-GMO, making it a great option for anyone with dietary restrictions or preferences. The packets are convenient and easy to use. You just mix them with your water and you drink. They're perfect for on the go. They're perfect for travel. And anytime you need a quick and effective hydration boost, ready to combat dehydration, then you try Cure today and feel the difference for yourself. You can use code TRUECRIMEXS for 20% off your order. That's T-R-U-E-C-R-I-M-E-X-S. I have a link that I'm putting in the most recent episode show notes, and True Crime Excess will get you 20% off. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now, Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about. They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality, all-natural, real food ingredients. All Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all-natural, whole food ingredients. And they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. There's no artificial flavors. There's no colors or additives. And there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. 
They want me to talk about my love of coffee, but the truth is I don't do much with coffee. But let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently, but one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel. And he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so I saw this item and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. And you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this for Laird is going to be True Crime XS. Pretty much everywhere except for Labarty Creations, if you use True Crime XS, that will get you, uh, at Laird, it'll get you 15% off. At some of the other places, it'll get you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is, uh, the third one is Liquid IB. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. Late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making, but Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but it's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but... I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, White peach I use as a secondary flavor and lemon lime I leave here for my kids and my kids and my wife. Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50-plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeXS at liquidiv.com. And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. We are part of Zencaster's creative network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. 
Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. It's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster. You can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guest. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best. I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all in one. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other ma major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com pricing and use my code TrueCrimeXS and you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is TrueCrimeXS. And it's time for you to share your story today. Uh, we are also adding New Era as a uh, sponsor for the show. New Era Cap is a headwear and apparel brand founded in 1920 in Buffalo, New York. Now, uh, I actually have some experience with New Era Caps. My dad and I have been through multiple iterations of baseball caps through the years. We collect different styles, different eras. And now my teenager has started his own cap collection and has several New Eras as the centerpieces. Our favorite teams may not be the same, but our outfits are all topped with the same new era ball caps. Uh, we love the quality and the ability to wear what the players are wearing. Not to mention new era is the leading headwear manufacturer with quality licensed products. You can support your favorite college or pro team in style from the official headwear provider for the MLB, NFL, and NBA. You can get a stylish accessory for your everyday ensemble and support True Crime XS. Just shop the official headwear and get 15% off when you go to neweracap.com. That's N-E-W-E-R-A-C-A-P.com slash True Crime Access. You can also use the code True Crime Access at checkout. That's it. That's all you have to do. And that's 15% off your order using the promo code True Crime Access.